this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. Before I begin this morning, I wanted to mention a word of gratitude this morning. Alice Cheney, our accompanist, woke up not feeling super great, and Rocky Gamblin has come to the rescue. And we just thank you, Rocky, for saying yes and to serving your church without much notice. And we are grateful for you this day. So if you don't know, I'm stepping out of my preacher comfort box a little bit, and I'm talking, um, I want to lift up a theme of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, our identity statement the, the, that lifts up who we are a part of, our Christian tradition that we are a part of. And over the next, last week I talked about movement, today's about wholeness, and next Sunday I'm talking about that communion table. And the statement reads like this, we are a movement for wholeness in a fragmented world, As part of the one body of Christ, we welcome all to the Lord's table as God has welcomed us. And through these three weeks, I hope that you learn something more about this beautiful tradition in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. But but even more than that, I really hope that you take something with you that helps you to think more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus to claim him as savior of your life and what it means for us together to be the church in the world today. So our passage this morning is from John 17. And when our passage begins, Jesus has already celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He has washed their feet. He has given them a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. And now... He turns to prayer. He prays. And this passage this morning picks up in the midst of a prayer that he is offering in that moment. It begins in verse 21, beginning in John chapter 17. I ask, not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. He says, I ask not only behalf of these as in the people in the room, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He's praying for the ones who've yet to come. In that Last Supper meal, he's praying for the ones who've yet to hear the story and who will come after. That's us. He's praying for you and for me that we might be one. Now, I thought today about 
lifting up some of all the ways that we are fractured and broken in our society and world. I even sort of jotted down a little list, and then I thought, I don't need to remind them of these things. You all know it. You already know the ways that our world is fractured and broken every day. But it's important to take note that from the very beginning, this tradition has been a people who values reaching across the table or the aisle in unity to remember that we have more in common than our differences. And it began way back at that revival in 1801 that I mentioned last Sunday in Bourbon County, Kentucky, where thousands of people gathered together and worshiped beyond their denominational labels. They just got together and they worshiped and fellowshiped and shared communion together. Back then, that was a super big deal. And after that moment, the Barton Stone, the Presbyterian minister of that little log cabin church, was so inspired by the experience of that time that he and five other churches a few years after this, they got together and they wrote what is called the Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery, being Presbytery being the higher church structure. And Now, if you ask me, it's a bit dramatic what they wrote, but still they wrote it, and they said this. We will that this body die, be dissolved, sink into the union with the body of Christ at large, for there is but one body, one spirit, even as we are called into one hope of our calling. In other words, you don't need to call us by any other church label name anymore. Just call us Christians. We want to sink into the Christian body at large. They wanted to be a part of this movement of Christianity all the way back on the frontier. But the spark of that still continues in our tradition and the life of our churches today. In the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, you will find our leaders in our churches reaching across the aisle celebrating, getting together wherever churches are, celebrating the diversity of the church. We tend to always be at the forefront of ecumenical Christian leaderships like World Council of Churches, the Council on Christian Unity, the Kentucky Council of Churches that happens to be led right now by a member of a minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. She lives right here in Western Kentucky. You'll always find our churches at the heart of wherever it is of people of faith gathering together. That's just who we are. The spark of that unity still continues to this day. But let me be clear about something about unity that I think sometimes we tend to get confused on. Just this past week, I had the privilege of being a part of a morning prayer gathering for leaders in our community, and I mentioned it then. And I want to make sure to mention it this morning, because unity is not the same thing as uniformity. And sometimes we get those confused. If you really are looking for uniformity, probably more country club-ish is the direction you need to go. But unity and uniformity are not the same. And even in the early church, we see how people were amazed 
by how Christians gather, that they were gathering not, beyond, not around some national, not language, not culture, not gender, not money or class or power. They were gathering together under the unity of Jesus Christ. And people were inspired by this. Who are these Christians? Who are these Christians who are able to step across divisions? And Jesus prayed that for us. That astounds me. Something I've overlooked a million times. That on the night of that last supper, Jesus was praying that we would all be one. He didn't say, please God, make them all powerful and wealthy. Sorry. He just said, make them one. Make them one. He prayed that his mission, his purpose, his ministry would be enough to unite us. And the truth is, I take comfort that from the very beginning, it seems that the, even the early church sometimes struggled with this reality. There were questions about Jew or Gentile or how kosher and following the religious laws of the day they needed to be. Uh, there was debates about unity in the church. Good grief, you read most of Paul's letters. He is claiming, fighting for unity within the church to keep the church together. In fact, here's one example I pulled this week in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's pleading for a community to learn how to preserve unity. Now, do you ever go back and rethink conversations you've had over the years? Maybe replay them, think of the things you wish you said or could have said, or maybe even wish you could rewind the tape and not say certain things. Anybody? Just me. There's a conversation I had over a decade ago that I still remember well. It happened to be a conversation with a church insurance salesman. My church was looking to save a few bucks, and we were uh, switching to a new policy with a new company. And I was having this really, truly delightful chat with this guy, and we were just talking churches and faith communities about similarities and differences, and he was asking me about how we baptize and how often we have communion and how people join the church. And uh, when he asked me about that one, I said, well, uh, our custom is when someone joins that they affirm their faith in Jesus as Savior, and then they're welcomed. He said, oh, really? No, no elders review them? Uh, no congregational vote? And I said, no, no. He said, oh, well, my church, we have a vote, but it's entirely just routine and customary. It's a universal acceptance, but a vote does happen after someone affirms their faith. But then he caught himself, and he said, actually, you know, about a year ago, this guy came forward, and let me tell you, his reputation preceded him. Oh, his life was an absolute mess. And he came forward... He made an affirmation of faith, and he was voted in. And he said, but oh, that next week, the pastor went to him and said, you, you, 
you can come here, but you really, you can't be a member of this fellowship. Now, I have thought about what I should have, could have, would have said in that moment. The truth is, I just changed the subject back to the insurance papers in front of us. But I did have enough sense to ask him before he left. I said, hey, that guy whose life is such a mess, does he still go to your church? He said, no, I haven't seen him since. And I have found myself thinking about him over the years. Wonder if he has a church home now. Wonder if he dares to darken the doors of any church, frankly. And I think about that spark of faith that he must have had to get up out of his seat, to come forward and to claim his faith. Yes, I believe. Yes, I want to follow him with my life. And I hope beyond hope that somehow he knows that even if the church has failed him miserably, that Jesus will not. He will not. And I know, church, that it really isn't easy to be someone who lives their life as a person who tries to build bridges, as a person who seeks to cross divides, however you may find them, especially when we are surrounded by messages all the time that tell us that the smart and the practical and the wise protect. They build walls. What's that expression? Uh, what makes a good neighbor? Strong fences. Ever heard that? And it sure isn't easy to be a church who seeks to take down walls, who seeks to reach hands out across the aisle, across the pew, seeks to be a church that isn't based on how perfect or just alike we all are, but how great our Savior truly is. A Savior so great that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he said, this is like my body that will be broken for you. And he offered it to the ones who were going to get scared and run off and hide. He gave it to the one who would deny him again and again and again. And he gave it to the one who would betray him. And through it all, he dared to pray for us. For us, that we would be one. A movement for wholeness in a fragmented world. You know, one of the most beloved stories in all the Gospels is the story Jesus told about the man with two sons, the prodigal son. You probably know it well. Father has a son who runs off, takes the family inheritance, spends it all. It's only when he's living amongst the pigs with nothing and no one that he decides he could go back to his old man and ask him if he could be a servant in his house. It's better where he is now. 
And he makes his way back, but the father goes running to see him, hugs him, kisses him, says, we're going to celebrate, we're going to throw a party tonight. And that's usually where we all sort of end the story. Hooray for the prodigal son who's returned home. But it's not the end, is it? Because there's another son. And he gets word that his messed up brother is back. And he's furious that his dad is throwing him a party. He's the one who stayed. He's the one who did all the right things. And he's getting a party? No way. And the story, well, Jesus ends it somewhat unfinished, I think. He doesn't tie it all up for us in a neat little bow. The story actually ends with the son in the front yard fuming about the party he's refusing to attend. Now that other son, he's already in there toasting to a new day, surprise, at his welcome. But that older son's in the front yard, and guess what? That dad goes running out to that one and said, you got to know, I have two sons, and I love them both. But I had to celebrate today because one was lost and now is found, was dead and now alive. Now the party, party's great. The party's going on. But won't you come? Won't you join? Messed up sons included. Amen. Amen.